0: Pierre is 10, and he practices in matches of the Stateway Park Gladiators, his community boxing team. At the end of a fight, if Pierre needs that extra boost, he has a special technique. He says he got it thinking about the cartoon The Incredible Hulk.
1: Cause I'll think about it. The Hulk on the boxing team. So Incredible Hulk, throw you down and stuff, and go wild and stuff.
0: When he spars, here's what happens. His buddies on the team, led by Coach Frank Smith, start chanting.
2: Uh 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 And then
0: Pierre, in the middle of the ring, starts to shake. His whole body vibrates. His head lowers. His eyes get glassy. He transforms from a loser into somebody who dominates with punches, with a crazy flurry of hitting.
1: It started hitting me so hard, and I get mad. Taking off some blues and i turn turning honk. Yeah, I look all wild silly. But when I get to the punching, there well, ain't gonna be no there ain't going be no taps. It's gonna be hard. Like uh real fighting people. And they winning belts and stuff.
0: A guy named Max Kellerman, who does this public access TV show called Max Unboxing, told me this story. He said that in Muhammad Ali's biography, Ali said that when he was hit really hard in the ring, he would enter this room in his mind. A room, he says, that all boxers enter when they're beaten hard enough. And on the wall of the room were these masks. And at some point, Ali had a fight where he took a real pounding, and he entered the room, and he looked around at the masks. And he realized that He could put one of the masks on. So he did. And he says, that's how he was able to last the round. It's the most natural thing in the world to punch someone in the face. And it's also the most unnatural. You have to psych up. You have to transform yourself. You have to do something to become the person who could put himself or herself straight into danger. And throw the punch. And then, once you become that person, once you become that, then who are you? Well, for WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Today on our program, Throwing the First Punch. And who do you become when you're able to throw the first punch? And how hard it is to stop being the person who throws the first punch? Round one, I would probably slug Jesus... A nice guy from Brooklyn explains why he loved to fight in bars and how hard it is to stop. Round two, to boldly go where no woman has gone before. The story of someone who finds the thing that means more to her than anything in the world is boxing and why she has to give it up. Round three, fighting is work. A man who, at 2.30 in the morning in a club in Chicago, takes on all comers and beats them and well and why for him it's just a job. Stay with us. Round one. Manny Howard grew up in Brooklyn in a working-class Irish enclave. He learned to fight with the other kids there. And he loved fighting, saw himself as a bully. He was such a committed fighter that when he got older, he became the first person to get suspended from Vassar College for fighting. And now he's trying to stop. He's trying to stop being the one who always throws a punch. But moving from that world, into the world that most of us inhabit, isn't easy. He spoke with Paul Tuff.
3: Heidi takes a cab ride home every night, which is $8.50. And we took this ride um, that ended up being $11. Clearly, the meter was fast. And I said to the guy, give me, give me the receipt. I'm not going to pay for the ride. Um, and he said, you know, oh, I knew the meter was fast. I meant to get that fixed. One thing led to another, and um, I basically snapped and grabbed him and folded him up. Opened, he was outside of the cab, and I was outside of the cab. I threw him inside the cab and slammed the doors on his legs, and he drove away.
4: So, was it like a standout sort of thing where the two of you were standing outside the cab, sort of shoving each other? Yeah, you pay me up. You pay me, no, I won't pay you. You pay
3: me, no, I won't pay you. And then he said that I was an enemy of the people which, since he was ripping me off, seemed like a pretty outrageous claim. But I snapped and I, you know, just charged him. Um, That's a failing on my part. I mean, I should be able to, I should be able to, you know, take his number and complain to the Taxi and Limousine Commission um, and take him to court, do it the right way. You know, there's always a way out of a fight.
4: So, you were, with, you were with your wife and you were with another guy. Yeah. And how did the two of them react?
3: Um, Sam loved it and Heidi hated it. Heidi walked away. Um, uh, did she give you a hard time? Oh, yeah. I had to sleep out of the house. I had to go th- around the corner, sleep at my mom's house. Um, you know, arguably you know, a fair punishment. I remember being a little kid and running away from a fight and being terrified and being blind and running and running and running and running. And it occurred to me that if people were going to be... And, they, you know, it's like playground fighting, but it's pretty traumatic when you're a little kid. You know, somebody's chasing you around, threatening to beat you over the head, and you're just terrified about what it... You know, you're not sure exactly what it is, except that somebody said they're going to beat you over the head. So you run and you run and you run, and you hope that you never get caught. and um, And then... If you do get caught, you get a beating on the head, and it's more humiliating than it is hurtful. But at some point, you decide, well, I'm not going to be the guy being chased in the playground. I'm going to do the chasing. Um, and it's as much to avoid the humiliation of having to run away as it is um, really enjoying, you know, doling it out, although you quickly learn to enjoy being a bully.
4: But you're saying there was a moment where you made that decision for yourself? Yeah, I thought if you're going to, you know, if
3: if if you can choose to be the guy throwing the beating, then you might as well be that guy instead of the guy getting the beating. The things that I learned early on were you you prepare for a fight uh, way ahead of time. You know, if you're going to go out at night, you wear big shoes because you end up on the floor getting dragged around, and sometimes you have to kick people. Uh Always throw the first punch, punch in the throat and the eyes, uh, the nuts and the knees. Those are you know, those are the, don't bother with any other part of the body if, you're, if you want to win the fight. Never tell anybody you're going to fight them, just punch them. It's important to be the guy who can throw the punch to me. Um, and it's, it's more important than whether or not you win the fights or not, I think, but it's a hard thing to do to throw a punch um, because you don't know what's gonna happen afterwards, you know then you get your ass kicked, and it's happened a lot. you know you throw a punch and then you know they kick come back at you ten at a time, and you know you lost that one before I got into fights or before I had my first fight and was mostly running away from fights, everything seemed to happen really, really quickly, and never was clear in your memory what had happened and why you were running down the street or the panic. But after the first fight, I realized that if you actually get in a fight, everything slows down. You get, I guess, I suppose it's adrenaline, Um, but things that um, you have time to think about everything. It's like being in a car crash. Uh, You notice things. Um, what people are looking at, you know, what the person you're f- about to fight with is looking at, what he's paying attention to, where his hands are, where, you know, if he looks, if he's the kind of guy who's going to hit you uh, first, all that stuff. You have this heightened awareness. Um, you don't notice. You, you know, it doesn't hurt then. It's scary, but it doesn't hurt. Nothing hurts really.
4: Really. So while you're, when you're in a fight, there's no pain at all. I'm sure,
3: I mean, I'm sure that there is, but it's not, it's not an unbearable pain. You don't give up because of the pain. Um, and I've never, I don't think I've ever been beaten bad enough so that you would, you know, never been beaten with a bat so that you actually, things break and stop working. But being punched doesn't really hurt. It's just exhausting. That's why, that's why fights don't last very long is because it's too exhausting.
4: It's exhausting to punch somebody or it's exhausting to get punched by somebody? Both. How does that, how's that exhausting? It takes a lot of energy
3: to to punch somebody, and it hurts a lot when you do it. And um, I don't really. I know that that you're never more tired than after you know you've gotten a good beating or you've given one, uh, and it doesn't seem to be any more tiring getting beaten than beating up somebody. <laughs> We were at, at some college bar, and somebody came running over all dramatic and, manic and uh, you know, flushed and said that Evan was in the hospital and had his teeth knocked out by the rugby team. So we all got in this car and drove to the hospital, the, I remember which I think it was St. Francis Hospital in Poughkeepsie, and went stormed the emergency room through the double doors, screaming Evan's name, looking for Evan, feeling very, you know, uh, excitable and... uh and Evan appeared from behind the screen. I'll never forget his face. His teeth were, front two teeth were just gone, and his lips were all swollen, and his, he had these big eyes, like, you know, like big, you know, puppy dog eyes. And he was speaking with a lisp, I'm talking to us, and very dramatically somebody, it was probably me, said, you know, what do you want to do? Do you want to go get him, or do you want to call college you know, uh, court in the morning and, you know, press charges? because we can't do both. Um, So it was kind of a little bit of a movie moment. Oh, guys, it is. Um, And so Evan, of course, said with his big lip said, let's get (laughs) him. About eight of us went to uh, a bar off campus where we knew the rugby team would be and we called them out to have a fight. And...
4: uh, yeah, what uh, what do you mean? How'd you do that?
3: We opened the door and started screaming at them to come out and you know fight we've been drinking for the most part of the evening, so I don't remember exactly what it was said anyway, eleven guys piled out of the bar um with about five rugby girls, the women who hung around with the rugby team uh, and Evan started insulting the women. <laughs> Um, which just incited everybody, including, actually, the rugby coach was there as well, a guy named Dennis. And at some point, Dennis got upset because Evan was insulting his girlfriend and rushed Evan, and Evan ran away. And, you know, poor Evan had had his teeth knocked out already. So, um, But that wasn't good for morale for the troops (laughs) because everybody but me and the two other guys named John left. And the fight had already progressed to a point where we were in the circle of guys, and it was about to happen, uh, so there was no real going back. And I'll never forget watching John, the bigger of the two Johns, grab a guy named Andy by the balls and by the throat and lift him up over his shoulders and over a bush where he just disappeared. No more Andy. And then he... Clapped his hands, cleaned his hands, and, and walked away across the street to find somebody else to punch. Now, that was, I remember seeing that while I was getting the back of my head and the front of my head pounded at the same time by two other guys. One guy, every time I turned around to face somebody to fight them, the guy behind me would punch me in the back of the head. And I remember thinking, this is how people die in fights. This is what happens. You get hit so hard that your neck breaks. And then I heard this inhuman scream, and I looked on the floor, and there was the other John, the smaller of the two Johns, and the rugby coach had John's three fingers of John's hand in his mouth, and there was blood rimming from his mouth. He was chewing on John's fingers. And John couldn't move, and his hands were being chewed on. And I was so freaked out by it that I walked over, and I kicked the coach in his head as hard as I could and his jaw sprung open, and he sort of looked around, and he got up, and so it was me and the coach facing each other, and he just started walking towards me, and I started walking backwards. And he just kept coming, and I thought, well, I can walk all the way home. He's just gonna follow me, so I better just stop. And then I stopped, and as he came towards me, I set my foot. And took that step forward and I punched him as hard as I could in the face. Harder than I'd ever punched anybody in my life. And he fell over. And I thought, first of all, it hurt like hell. My hand hurt. And I thought, wow, I, I knocked out the coach. And, but he popped up. <laughs> Like one of those Bozo the Clown punching dolls, like he was on the ground. He was on the ground for a second before he was standing up again. A second where everything was working out. Right, (laughs) time slows down. So, (laughs) and he just kept coming, and so I turned around to run away, (laughs) and I turned around and ran into a visiting alumni whose name was Bear, and he was so much bigger than me. He just got me in a bear hug which I guess is what he was named for. And he turned me on my head, and he dropped me on my face on the concrete, right in the curb. And then the coach stood on my head and started stomping my head into the road. And it's one of those uh, suburban roads that are paved with gravel. And so I got all the skin torn off the high parts of my face, on my uh, above my eye, and on my chin, and on my jaw. And then, mercifully the uh, we all heard police sirens I remember seeing Dennis the next morning after breakfast and I had my face was still all raw and uh, he had this big black eye and I looked at his uh, his face and he looked at my face and we, you know sort of apologize to each other in that way, without saying I'm sorry. And we got along fine after that. We never had any trouble. Uh, And that's true for the rest of the team. If anything, we all never spoke about it again, but we all (laughs) got along much better afterwards.
4: Do you feel like there are some fights in which it's just like, I mean if you're in a bar and you're with some people who want to fight and there's other people who want to fight and that I mean that's just everybody wins you know yeah, so
3: I mean we used to do that we just fight with each other you know John broke a chair over my head once over my back not really my head uh, when I was getting up from him throwing me on the ground and it was fine you know it was part of the it was part of the uh, you know fun and every you know We decided to have a fight. He poked me. I poked him. He punched me. I punched him. And then we were going. And and it wasn't play fighting at all. I am. I would really, really, really feel bad about myself if I did any of the things that I did then. Now, Um, I I suppose it just doesn't seem. At some point, it doesn't seem appropriate anymore to be behaving that way to be looking for a fight you know i see it differently um, it upsets my wife
4: <laughs> so do you feel like um i mean you talked about this one moment on the schoolyard where you decided you're going to be the guy who punched instead of the guy who got punched do you feel like now you're trying to make the opposite decision you're trying to become the guy who runs away again
3: I mean, I have the self-confidence now, I think, having been a bully that I can do without it. But I couldn't have, I wouldn't be satisfied with that answer if I had never done it. If I had gone from, you know, running away um, to finding a solution to the problem, um, I'd always be haunted by the, well, why don't, you know, why did not you just pound the guy into the ground? See if that doesn't solve the problem. And a lot of times it does. I mean, a lot of times, I mean, you know. It's really fun sometimes, you know. You get square off against a guy in a bar and you know before the fight starts that you're just going to kick his ass. Um, and you know, he's a schmuck and he's starting a fight with you and he's starting a fight with you with his arms at his sides and he's leading with his face. You just can't wait for him to say enough for you to just pop him in the face, have it be done with, and hopefully really humiliate him. That's fun.
4: So that's so even now you would still you would still feel that way in a bar if there was a guy just being clearly the idiot you would you you'd take the first swing and you'd feel good about it
3: I don't know part of me would like to say yes definitely and part of me knows that I wouldn't do that anymore in fact I'd like to I was thinking about this the other day I wondered if I would turn the other cheek um, if something happened. Um
4: I just don't think I would I don't have the strength the, the fortitude to to do that what do you what do you think of that of that uh that line in the Bible of turning the other cheek?
3: I don't even know where to start with it you know i mean I don't know where to start with it you, um, i know, mean did- i only understand it as a metaphor i i couldn't i don't know how you apply it you know I've only ever been in situations since I decided that I was going to be the guy throwing the punches, not getting them, that I looked for the fight. So, I'm the other end of the spectrum. Hope, you know, one day I'm probably Slug Jesus. (laughs) It's not the, I I don't think that I've got what it takes to, you know, to take a hit. I've spent so much time defining myself as a guy who never would. We have a neighbor who has a dog who barks all the time. We get, I get in big screaming matches. I used to get in big screaming matches with him about the dog. And uh, his behavior as a neighbor is outrageous. He's a bad neighbor. He should be punished. But I can't punish him. And you know, I'm not the one who's going to do the punishing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I made that decision. When I think about this particular instance, I think there was a time when I would have fed the dog steel wool, you know, or broken glass or something, and then created a situation where the dog was dead and I obviously did it, and then there would be a fight, um, and I could, you know, muster all the moral righteousness for for being falsely accused of killing his dog and then beating the guy up as well. I mean. That sounds like something I would love the idea of it now, you know, but I know that I'm not going to poison the guy's dog, you know, so we're just going to keep going around and around in this horrible circle where I frown at him when he says hi to me, and, you know, I let him know that I disapprove
4: of him, (laughs) you know. It's the problem with the world where you don't throw a bunch of things, just go on and on.
3: It's true, yeah, that's that's exactly right. (laughs) No quick resolution.
0: Manny Howard still lives in Brooklyn, where he writes a column about bars for the New York Press and does other writing. He talked to This American Life senior editor, Paul Tuck. is fighting cathartic in kodiak alaska on the 4th of july in front of the american Legion hall they used to set up a boxing ring and all day long with hundreds of people watching the citizens of kodiak would fight third grade kids fifth grade kids and adults lots of adults they called it roughhouse boxing radio producers nikki Silva and davia nelson the kitchen sisters witnessed it a few years back
5: a lot of these were sort of grudge ma- matches that had built up on fishing boats all season. And, you know, people can't very well on a fishing boat duke it out and have a successful run. So it's I'll meet you at the 4th of July, and we'll work this out then.
0: Do you see people um, fight their own employers?
6: Yeah, a guy told us about fighting his own boss and that he'd given his boss two black eyes, but that he had almost had a heart attack in the ring while giving his
5: boss uh, two black eyes. And he had to go to the hospital for a couple of hours after the event to kind of recover. It was ugly.
7: Wow, well, we need some more people on up here. Women, preferably. Little kids.
6: In listening to the tape, we we're hearing the. Um, MC of the boxing event, urged different couples that he knows are having marital trouble to get in the ring. Come on, Roxanne. Come on, Jack. Get in the ring.
7: Jones, you and Roxanne get in there. Art, how about
8: you over there?
4: I
6: mean, it was kind of an all-purpose kind of a cleansing, a kind of a village cleansing. And... I have always called the event Yom Kippur with gloves, because it's <laughs> to me. I was raised with what Yom Kippur was. Which let, me, is,
0: let me just let me just uh, let me just say that Yom Kippur is the Jewish holiday of atonement, which and it, you had
6: to atone for your sins, and you had to at least forgive. You might not forget, but you got to get over it. You got to move on. You got to work it out. You've got one day to do it. It, w- it was great too, because it was sort of like the block party gone. Wild, you know,
5: <laughs> <laughs> block, block party with silks. Uh, you know, the crowd fed it, and the crowd was—they were like hungry for uh, for the game. You know, for the sport, and people were all around us, commentating, practically grabbing the microphone to get their two cents
6: worth in.
7: Look, look like a boy against a man, and that the mushrooms.
0: You know, I don't even know how to say this. You know what this puts to shame is, like, Judge Wapner in the People's Court. You know, like, that isn't what you want to see. What you want to see is this, you know? Like, this. if this were on TV, don't you think this would be just, like, a huge thing where, like, two people who have a grudge, you know, come before, you know, whoever the host of the show is going to be, let's say, um, George Foreman, <laughs> you know? And he's, like, he's the referee of the match. He's the Judge Wapner of this thing. And, you know, and then the two people would come before him, and they both would sign some sort of liability form before they go on. And just like the People's Court, then they would explain what their little tiff was about, and then we'd watch them duke it out. And it would be called the
6: People's Ring.
0: The People's Ring. Se- seriously, when you, when you think about this, do you think this would be a healthy thing if more people had this in their lives? Or do you think there's something kind of horrifying about it, too?
6: I do think it would be healthy if there was some, Nikki's making. No, the worst I, face. I know, I'd be kind we of might horrified. Have to box it I moment. know, we will.
5: <laughs> Kitchen <laughs> sisters, get in the ring. I don't know. I don't, I can't see it.
6: He, I, look, I'm not going to start the committee to let's spread roughhouse boxing for the millennium throughout America. But, um, I'm not arguing for violence. I'm not defending violence. I just think you can't deny the violence. Inside most people. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Nikki Silva and Davia Nelson. The town of Kodiak stopped roughhouse boxing years ago because of insurance reasons. There was no way to prevent lawsuits about split eyes and busted noses. Those insurance companies are ruining our great American traditions. Coming up, Girl Meets Ring, Girl Loves Ring, Girl Leaves Ring, sort of. And Boxing is a Job. That's in a minute from Public Radio International when our program continues. Mm-hmm. American Life, Amira Glass, each week in a program, of course, we use a theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, being the person who throws the first punch, and what happens to you when you become that person, and how hard it is to stop being that person. We've arrived at Act Two of our show, Round Two, to boldly go when no woman has gone before. We have this story of loving to fight, Famima Mima
9: Maritza was an accountant, a financial analyst at a huge insurance company. She was living day to day, like anybody else. Then she heard about this boxing class that was being offered at the company gym. Some guy named Milton was teaching. Maritza liked sports. She'd even taken an aerobic boxing class before. So she decided to go down and check it out.
1: Here I am with a suit coming in. Oh, this is the first time I didn't get, I didn't have a chance to change. So I'm walking in all, all suited up. Um, so he comes in and he's saying, well, you know, I'm here to teach you boxing. I said, well, so. And?
7: I wasn't impressed. So Marissa comes up, and she's so short, you know, she goes, I want to get rid of my stomach. I want to get rid of my gut. And So she was so short. I look at her, I go, honey, I teach boxing. You know, the same boxing and robux. You know, arrow boxing. This, this is boxing. You want to learn how to box, you can't be the right place. If you want to come and dance around, jump around, I says, I'm not the guy for you. So this ain't what you want.
1: He wasn't even thinking about me. There's another girl who thinks this is the rock. I mean... So I threw a punch, he goes, oh, you got a pretty good punch there. He goes, let me see what you got You hot, you bam, bam, throwing, you got a pretty good punch there. He goes, but who's so dead about it? Cause you're too stiff. That is, not trying to fix me and, I'm gonna teach you how to read, but I'm gonna shine you up like a, like a no shoe and polish you up. And I, he made me laugh. <laughs> I thought it was amusing. I found it amusing. It reminded me it reminded me of watching the old movies. And this guy telling me I'm like know oh, old shoe is gonna pass me. I said this guy's got an act.
7: So I started working with like every day with uh, come down with the pads. giving her the combinations and so she started falling into place. So I was like, Whoa. I said, You know something? I says uh I said, if I could bring you to my gym in Brooklyn, I said, you could win a New York City Golden Gloves. She goes, I can? I go, honey, that, what I got you doing right now, no girl fights the way you do right now.
9: So that was, that's, that's how it all started. Every day after work in Manhattan, Maritza would take the subway all the way out to Brooklyn to train for three or four hours at Milton's Gym and then go all the way back home to Queens. She spent her weekends at the gym. No one in her old life understood what she was doing. She'd grown up in the projects, put herself through college, gotten an MBA, held a good-paying job, and here she was, back so close to the streets. When she got a broken nose and black eyes in the ring, she lied to her coworkers about it, didn't tell them she was boxing. Her parents didn't approve of women fighting. They were conservative, born in Puerto Rico. Her friends were suspicious of her weight loss. They accused her of being anorexic, infected with HIV, or addicted to drugs. But at the gym, everyone believed in her. Maritza was the only girl at Milton's, his first girl, so she'd spar with the men there.
7: So She took Joey one day, and she was throwing like nonstop combinations and punches repetitiously. Da, 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 da. So there was an old man sitting down in the chair. He goes, God damn, that boy could throw some punches, right? But she had the head going. on. So when she finished, he came over to me, he goes, that's going to be one good damn fight. That boy is going to be great. He goes, who is that? I go, what guy are you talking about? He goes, that guy. I go, I hate to tell you this. That's no guy. He goes, what do you mean that's no guy? Look like a guy? I go, that's a girl. Said, ain't no damn girl. I go, that's a girl. He goes. get out of here. So I said, Maritza, come here. So she come over to me and I go, took over Higgy. I go, does she look like a girl now? <laughs> he goes, oh.
9: Looking at Maritza, you probably wouldn't think boxer. She's small, just over five feet tall and only one hundred six pounds. Her features are fine and delicate, but when she talks about her love for boxing, you can see her in the ring. She's radiant. It's like speaking to someone who's had a religious conversion.
1: Boxing has shed a light on me. It's like my vision. It's like I just obtained a vision. It's like this is this is oh, this is what I was put here for.
3: Mm-hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight's next bout is the women's 106-pound class. The referee is Pete Santiago. In the gold corner, Maritza Arroyo from the Supreme Team Boxing Club. Arroyo is a financial analyst and a part-time personal trainer. She's been boxing for a year and is a metros champ.
9: This is her first With Milton's training, Maritza was unbeatable. Within a year, she had taken all the amateur titles in New York. She won the metros, the Empire States, and in 96, she won the biggest of all the Golden Gloves in Madison Square Garden, a fight televised around the world, held in a ring where some of the greatest boxers in history have fought. Maritza and I get together to watch the video of her 96 Golden Gloves win. The Garden's packed, the crowd's going wild. is incredibly fast and beautiful in the ring. Watching her, you understand what it means to be a smart fighter. She's calculated. The woman she's fighting is taller than she is, with longer arms, so Maritza ducks down low and jabs up to the body, choosing where she lands her punches, to the ribs, then to the chest. And when her opponent can barely catch her breath, Maritza's up, giving her a fierce combination to the face and head.
1: There goes, there goes the uppercuts. There goes another one to the body. Ow! Another one to the body. Another one, another one.
2: Another one.
9: In the last 10 seconds, Manson gets in a good punch, straight to Maritza's face. Maritza stumbles back, and then seems to go crazy. She throws nonstop combinations, and the crowd is screaming.
1: There you go. There goes the hook. See that? Whoa. Whoa. That's it. 10 seconds. Bam. There you go. I said, I threw it all. Go. Go. There you go. There you go. There you go. There you go. Throw it. I missed a lot,
9: but I threw. (laughs) Can we just watch the last 10 seconds? That was so cool. Oh, my God, you are so good, Maritza. I am. So, I want to I want to see you fight so badly. After the fight ends, we're laughing. We keep rewinding to watch Maritza's amazing finale. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a <my> grin? <laughs> you are got a grin, right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, okay, all right, all right, all right. I really not, that's Okay, okay. Yeah, that was a grin. That was a good grin. That was a good grin.
9: We're both completely high and hysterical, Maritza's face is transformed. This is pure joy. And in a way, it's terrible, because we both know she's quitting boxing. Maritza wants to go pro, but there doesn't seem to be any way she could make a living at boxing. She's only 106 pounds. They don't even have a name for her weight class. If she went pro, no one knows of any women who are good enough to match her. As it is, there are only two amateur women at her level. In all her title matches, she's always been put up against these same two opponents over and over, and she's beat them every time. Maritza's lucky enough to have found the thing she loves, the thing that makes her life complete, but unlucky enough that the timing worked out all wrong. More women are getting into boxing all the time and starting younger. In ten years, there may be enough women that Maritza would be able to make a career of it, but she's already in her thirties. She says she has to be realistic about the future, so she's gone back to school, and she's working full-time.
1: I, you know, I, I get mixed feelings, you know, when I, when I go into the gym, I want to do it, you know, but when I come away from the gym and I start looking at reality, <laughs> it's like, um, I'm sad, it's like a sadness, um, I mean, nobody sees it on the outside, no one sees it, but on the inside, it's like it died.
9: it's like, God, it could have been you, you should be in there boxing. It's like she's in love with someone she knows she has to leave. So she circles around boxing, quits, comes back for one-night stands. Last year, Milton signed her up for the Metro's tournament without telling her. On the night of the fight, he called her from ringside and told her they were holding up the match for her. Maritza got in her car and drove from Queens to Brooklyn, while Milton lied to the judges about Maritza being stuck in traffic. She arrived, beat her opponent in three rounds flat, but was so disgusted with herself for fighting when she was trying to retire that she left without even collecting her trophy. But being back in the game felt too good, and after that win, she just couldn't bring herself to walk away. Despite her reservations, she went on to fight in the 1997 New York Gloves, and of course won. For his part, Milton had no reservations. Maritza will always be his best girl, his first girl. But he's now becoming resigned to the fact that she doesn't have much time left in boxing.
7: She boxed like three with would go a macho macho in his prime. I mean, she's slick, she's smart, she thinks in there. She doesn't really get hit. She don't let you give up beating. She hands out the beatings. You know, I wish I would have found her when she was a little bit younger. A lot younger.
9: Here's how hard this is for Maritza. Even her plans for retirement from boxing include boxing. She's training to be a massage therapist, to massage boxers, she says. She quit her job as an accountant and now works full-time as a trainer in a gym. She has this theory that she'll get over boxing by going to boxing matches all the time.
1: Maybe I'll overcome it by being there. Maybe that's what I need to do, is to face it. To face the fact that finally I'm not doing it anymore, that I'm not going to be boxing anymore. Maybe that's what I need. No. Maybe. Come
7: on here real quick. Maybe. See the difference? Go.
9: In February, just after Maritza misses the deadline for the 1998 Golden Gloves, I go to Milton's gym to see her fight. Even though these days Maritza isn't there much anymore, Milton has promised me that Maritza will spar with a new girl he's training. We wait and wait and no Maritza. An hour passes. When she finally shows, she looks worn out and tired. She's not dressed to box, and she says she's got the flu. She's not going to fight. Right away, everyone starts pushing her. Really? Well, let's just do it a little. You want to? Yeah. But I ain't got nothing with me. What do you need? Everything. Yeah, not, and I'm nothing. She says she didn't bring her shoes. She doesn't have any of her gear. Milton points to some shoes lying in the corner, says they're her size. Suddenly, Maritza doesn't look so tired.
1: But I got to tell you, I have no mouth so
9: Then Maritza drops the pretense. We head down in the elevator to her car turns out she's been carrying her gloves, her mouthpiece, her wraps, all of her equipment in her car for the past year. While, so just in case.
5: I think this is going to happen.
9: That's why I don't want to come, Ronnie. why I don't want to come. you got the biggest smile on your face. You look so happy right now, because I love boxing. That's why. It's
1: like... uh, It's got me where I'm at today, okay? Very, very happy and uh, very balanced, I guess. So. Wow. All right, we're on 2nd uh, um, Avenue, 2nd Avenue between 2nd, and 3rd, and uh, 13th Street. So here I am with no voice. Who I order for a going to go spar. Is that crazy?
9: That's crazy. She grabs her bag, and we race back to the gym. And as Maritz is getting dressed, I notice she wears tiny golden gloves on a chain around her neck. Milton stands ringside, pumped up, ready to see his favorite in action again.
7: This is Howard Kelso, live right here from Supreme Team Boxing. <laughs>
2: What?
7: Oh. Relax your shoulders, Maritza. Relax your shoulders. Too tight. Ooh, good one.
9: Maritza's stiff at first. Then she starts to relax. She's ducking down, dancing around the ring. And in the last ten seconds of the fight, she has a surge of energy. She's punching hard, moving fast, throwing nonstop combinations. Good. Come on, girls. and afterwards she's pumped up with adrenaline sweating laughing with Milton and the guys in the gym she says she'll be back to spar and train every week and even though she's missed the deadline for this year's golden gloves she swears she'll take the gloves next year stay tuned for 1999 she says stay tuned But Maritza doesn't show at Milton's the next week or the week after. She breaks two appointments with me. She doesn't return my calls. And when I finally reach her, she's angry. Angry she fought again. Scared she's getting sucked back in. And how about the fact that you're still carrying around your gear? (laughs)
1: Well, I guess I can't get let go of boxing yet. Um, Maybe it's my security blanket. Okay, it's... It's like always knowing that it's always there, that I can always hit that bag and just, you know, I, can, I get in front of the mirror at my house every day, just me jab and come around and, you know, do the moves and, you know, it's, it's my connection to boxing. So I'll have to carry it. I have to, I carry this with me. I sleep with it. I have gloves in my car. I love it. It's, it's me.
0: That story by Mima Spadola, a documentary filmmaker in New York, who also boxes. (music) Round three, hard work. Well, so far on our program, we've heard from people who love being the person who throws a punch, unofficial fighters and amateurs. This is a different kind of story. Frankie Cruz Jr. boxed in the Olympics twice, won silver and bronze medals. He's a six-time Florida State Golden Glove champ, four-time national Golden Glove champ. And a year ago, he quit amateur fighting decided he was going to try to make a living from boxing. It's the kind of job where people try to hit and injure you for a living, but you get no health insurance. In a year, Frankie's had a broken rib, broken ankle, broken hand, a case of cauliflower ear that's gone untreated, and he's not officially even gone pro yet. He spoke with this American Life producer, Julie Snyder.
5: Frankie Cruz got his job from one punch. A year ago, in a nightclub in Miami, the 170-pound Frankie knocked out a guy weighing 260 with a right hand. He says the punch brought everyone to their feet including a middle-aged dance club owner from Chicago named Ruben Pasmino. That night, Ruben had a vision for his Tropicana club, and it revolved around Frankie Cruz. Later that week, Frankie was on a plane to Chicago. I came in a limousine.
8: They want to pick me up in a limousine. They took me to Tropicana. They treated me the nice way. It was fun, you know.
5: Let's get to it's 2:30 in the morning at the Tropicana, a Latina nightclub that houses four bars, a VIP room, a restaurant and a huge dance floor with a balcony. It's 2:30 in the morning and nearly a thousand people are packed inside on a Tuesday. After the weightlifting contest and after the lip syncing and after the four erotic dancers finish massaging a shirtless man with baby oil, there's boxing in a regulation ring set up in the middle of the dance floor. It's fight night and the star is walking in the door. It's Frankie. <laughs> Hip and beautiful, Latina's turn to look at the five foot 10 Nicaraguan-born fighter with dyed blonde hair and a broken nose. He's not yet dressed in his boxing gear. Instead, he wears a mustard-colored sports coat, slacks, and so much jewelry that he literally makes noise when he moves. Here's Frankie's job. Here's the job he left his kids and family for. It's free-for-all boxing. Anyone can fight. You can fight. I could fight anyone all you have to do is sign a release form agreeing that if your nose breaks teeth get punched out or you end up with a mild concussion you know it's your fault for being too drunk and easily encouraged by your friends to get into a boxing ring in the first place you can choose to fight your best friend your nemesis or you can take your chances and fight Frankie if you knock down Frankie you get a thousand dollars in cash or the mysterious grand prize. everyone goes for the cash
8: the first guy I beat, it was wow. He took so much punch. And he
5: didn't want to, he didn't
8: want to go down, but you know he finally quit in the second round. And then another one came bigger, and every time bigger and bigger.
5: Ring. Hurry, please come to the ring. Frankie will fight anyone who signs up. Sometimes he's boxed five or six matches in one night. An incredible feat of endurance, something no pro boxer would ever do. And Frankie gets paid the same whether he fights one guy or five guys. He's fought with one arm tied behind his back. He's fought three guys at once. He's fought in awe 128 fights at the Tropicana. He's won 127. Frankie won't say how much he gets paid, but it's not much. And he says he sends most of that money back to his ex wife, his three children, and his grandmother in Miami. So he's broke all the time. For the first seven months he was in Chicago, Frankie lived in a back room of the Tropicana. He also worked as a bouncer on the nights he wasn't boxing. So for days on end, Frankie never left the club. Sometimes on a Saturday or Sunday when the business offices were closed, Frankie would be locked inside and would have to wait for the Tropicana to open in order to leave. He says he didn't mind it that much until Ruben, the owner, took his television set away in order to start up a new karaoke night. You
8: no, know, after I finished fighting sometimes four or five guys in the night, I used to go outside and cry and say, Why I'm doing this? This this is not, you know, I'm, I think I'm not getting paid enough to do it. And everything's business. And if you don't talk business, good. If you don't study the business good, you will never make it. Okay. Uno, dos,
2: Come
5: on! Right now, two African-American guys from the audience have signed up to fight each other and are going at it in the ring. Both weigh well over 200 pounds. While they clumsily stumble around the ring, taking wide punches and falling against the ropes, the almost pre-teen-looking ring girls get instructions on what they're supposed to do when Frankie re-enters the ring. Walk around that way
2: real sexy, and then stop and the camera
5: so he can take a picture of it. You, wear, you take your robe off when you get inside the ring, and then you put
2: your robe on before you get back
5: out. The girls in thong bikinis hustle around as Frankie emerges, now wearing a blue and gold running suit, a straw cowboy hat, and a Nicaraguan scarf tied around his neck. Frankie stands with the announcer while the two ring girls walk in circles, each holding an end of his championship belt. The belt always gets the center spotlight. When training, Frankie lays the belt down next to his treadmill, says a prayer, and starts running. It's on the floor next to him when he's jumping rope. Once when I showed up to interview him at his gym, before we could go off to talk, he opened his gym bag and pulled out a little plastic stand that you used for picture frames. He put the stand on a desk facing the front door of the gym. And put the belt on it. On one end of the belt is Frankie's name. On the other, Viva Auto Sales Park. Because, unfortunately, the Tropicana didn't give him the belt. For several months, Frankie says he continually asked Ruben for one, but kept getting blown off.
8: I decided at least to get a box of the year in the club, you know. And I've been talking about him. I'll, you know, do something special, you know. Because so when I wanted to get a belt for him, I want him to represent, you know, give it to me, and you know, but he never gone there and told me, "Here, Frankie, here, go here, go have fun." Okay? Yeah.
5: It's not fair. Instead, a friend introduced Frankie to the owner of Viva Auto Sales. The guy agreed to buy the belt for Frankie if he could put the Viva name on it. It's a good investment. You meet Frankie, you meet the belt. Leaving the belt with the ring girls, Frankie climbs between the ropes and gets in his corner. His managers, Danny and Hank, are there with him. They're grooming him to go pro in June. They give him a place to live, they see that he eats right, doesn't drink, and trains every day. Frankie's opponent doesn't look too intimidating. Staggering, he enters the ring wearing jeans, a long sleeve green shirt, and Doc Martens. He's at least 240 pounds, complete with overhanging gut and love handles. It would take a lot of alcohol to make someone like this believe he belongs in a ring with a trained Olympic medalist. But he's had a lot of alcohol. Hank and Danny size up the guy. The fact that he's drunk means his fighting may be sloppy, but it also makes it harder on Frankie because the drunks don't feel the pain as much. As the bell goes off, Hank screams instructions from the corner. Get out of there. come on! Frankie splayed against the ropes. In a shocking move, Frankie's opponent came racing out of the corner and immediately began swaying. It's a barfighter's tactic. Get in the first punch. He gets Frankie up against the ropes in the corner and on the defense, as Frankie only manages to get in a few body jabs. Frankie's last hey. It never occurred to me how hard Frankie would have to work to win his fights, how much of a beating he takes. He looks tired and confused. on On the floor on the floor. At the end of the first round, Hank and Danny counsel Frankie in the corner. Mostly it's a big pep talk. You're the champ, they yell. You're the champ.
2: Frankie! Hey! Well, uh, Show me something fancy. T- 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 you know what to do. Kick his ass!
5: In, in round two, Frankie comes back. His opponent's punches become weaker. At times, they miss Frankie completely. And almost gently, Frankie edges the guy up against the ropes in his own corner and does combinations to his head, pounds away at him, blood spurts everywhere. It's an incredible moment, satisfying in a way I never would have guessed. Sweat and spit fly off Frankie's body. Hank and Danny go wild. The crowd goes wild. Frankie breaks the guy's nose, and the ref ends the fight. When Frankie staggers back and drops his hands, blood drips from his gloves onto the starched white mat. Hank screams at him. Hey, that's the beating.
2: I like to see. That's the way you, the you see the oh,
9: yeah.
5: Boxing can make you feel so small. The force of the punches is so brutal and penetrating that it's almost mythical. When Frankie climbed out of the ring, he asked me if I was impressed. I couldn't even answer. I couldn't talk to him. In only a few minutes, this guy who has to beg for a belt from a used car dealership suddenly seemed untouchable. I've asked Frankie over and over what he loves about boxing, and he doesn't really say anything. He doesn't like hurting people. He doesn't have any romantic ideas about the tradition of boxing or its primal appeal. That's not why he boxes. It's a job, a job that doesn't pay all that much in grimy, punishing working conditions. A job that he's good at, but that doesn't hold a lot of mystery anymore. The one thing that makes it special for Frankie is the crowds. What I love about
8: boxing is the people. I think if people don't go see you, it won't be fun. I, I believe that people, even if they're not cheering for me and they're booing for me, but after I win or after I finish the fight, I know I got all those people who didn't cheer for me. They're going to give me their hands, and they're going to say, wow, you had a great fight.
5: After his match, Frankie begins jumping around, running through the crowds, up to the top floor of the nightclub, looking for fans. He does this every time, Hank says. When Frankie sees me, he stops and motions for me to follow, so I can record how much the crowd loves him.
8: Yeah, baby. Congratulations, brother. You're getting better big and better, baby. I'm getting better and better, too. You That's get right I am? That's right. Yeah. Hell, yeah. you not that guy pretty good this You're the only way tapping up this world right here.
5: Out of the ring, looking for attention, Frankie doesn't seem like a giant anymore. He's a guy. boy he even. A lot of people come over and shake his hand, say a word. A lot more push right by him, heading down to the ring, where six women from the audience are now taking part in a do-it-yourself strip tease. Men in the audience pull dollar bills from their wallets and shove past. They don't look at Frankie. <laughs>
0: story from Miss American Life producer, Julie Snyder. We thought we'd close out our program today with this recording. It's Muhammad Ali, then Cassius Clay, recorded in
2: 1964. When the night has come, and the land is dark. Sim
0: This program was produced today by Julie Snyder and myself with Elise Spiegel and Nancy Updike, Senior Editor Paul Tuff, Contributing Editors Jack Hitt, Margie Rockland, and Consulary Sarah Val. Production help from Rachel Day, Laura Doggett, and Sugini Davenport. Special thanks today to Bert Sugar, George Hernandez, Max Kellerman, Steve Glass, Frank Smith, and Helen Kim, whose photos of child boxers in Dorchester, Massachusetts, were the inspiration for today's program. If you want to buy a cassette of this program, call us at WBEZ here in Chicago, 312-832-3380. 312-832-3380 Our email address radio at well.com This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our program has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting the John D. and Catherine D. MacArthur Foundation and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia who every single day calls me into his office, points to a picture of Garrison Keillor and says Let's get it. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. And all by me
2: PRI, Public Radio International.